They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. take no you visibly winced at that one so i think we should run with this all right merry christmas everyone welcome to magellan's at the movies year in review of the year of our lord 2023 it's been a heck of a year we've started on some new wars uh because we just can't get enough there's been some uh some sicknesses some tragedies some uh, financial problems ai has really taken off this year that's all stuff that no one cares about. We're here to talk. It's not stuff that no one cares about. It's <laughs> not. <laughs> that's all stuff that's not within our purview to discuss. That purview is the entertainment world. Yeah. So I, I want to start off real quick before we get into kind of our recap stuff. I wanted to real quick give a shout out to my boy. Rest in peace, Ryan O'Neal. Uh, he passed away last week. Uh, this just this past Saturday, I believe. This is one of my favorite actors. I think he's so great. He's in so many of some of my favorite movies. We reviewed Barry Lyndon. If you want to go back and check out that review, I talk very glowingly of his performance and how perfectly cast he is in that movie. He's also in Paper Moon, What's Up Doc, Love Story, movies that I really enjoy quite a bit. So I wanted to give him a quick shout out here before we got started. Sure. <laughs> Uh, it's obviously a tragedy when a uh, human life is lost. I can't say that I have a whole lot of personal affection for him, but uh, absolutely rest in peace. He has gone on to his great reward. All right, anyway, pivoting a smidge, let's get started. Elliot, this was a long year. We saw quite a few movies. It was, there were 365 days in this year. That's how long it was. Yeah. We're a little early, so... <laughs> but... We're going to start off with our three least favorite movies that we saw this year that came out this year. Elliot, there were some stinkers. Let's get this started. How about you tell me your, what's one of them? These are, these are in no particular, actually there is an order. I will say, I will highlight the worst movie that I saw this year. I will give that one a shout out. Otherwise these are in kind of no particular order for me. Um, yeah, I would have to say, it's hard for me, because we were discussing this recently, that I do not dislike or like most movies that I see. I would say about 60 to 70% of the movies I see, I'm just pretty ambivalent towards. That I'm just like, yeah, yeah, that was a thing. I've, I'm, I've wasted some time, but there was something to enjoy, some things that could have been worked on, move on with my life. So actually, it's kind of hard for me to... I don't really exist on emotional extremes, despite what my frequent emotional extremes on this program might indicate. So I say that to say that these movies, with one exception, aren't necessarily like awful. They're more like disappointed. I think that it would be more like 
these are my most disappointing movies of the year. So starting off with The Creator, which I know Nathan is not going to be happy about, but I was very disappointed with this movie. I was really excited for it because I think that Gareth Edwards is a talented director. Uh, it seemed like a really cool story, a really cool idea. It had a lovely cyberpunk sort of aesthetic that, and all that was there, talented direction, cool aesthetic, interesting idea, but ultimately, it was, I mean, it was like this massive Olympic swimming pool and Gareth Edwards and co were just kind of like splashing around at the most shallow end of it is how I would describe it. Um, very predictable, very rote, very simplistic in its treatment of its subject matter uh, that it's that really, really let me down. Um, I was hoping for something much more substantial and... Even the rendition it gave of this dynamic that I like so much of the grizzled, world-weary old veteran taking care of a young ward and that sort of relationship and the learning that they do from each other. It was such a cliched adaptation of that that I, there wasn't really much for me to latch onto besides the visuals, besides the potential for what could have been, but what ultimately was squandered. So it's, it's not a bad movie. I'm, I really wish it would have done better because it's a completely original idea, which I love. I think that we need more of that. It did a lot with a little in terms of budget. So there's a lot to respect about this movie. A lot to, a lot of stuff that I hope other people will like sort of take up and see through to their full potential. But the movie itself, I would say was disappointing to me. All right, well, I'm not even gonna give that any sort of comment. I'm just going to move on to my, my, one of my least favorites. I wasn't going to uh, see this movie, but there was one week this year where I was incredibly sick. So I decided to watch a movie that I knew was going to suck just so I could kind of get some entertainment value out of that. And it, it paid off. I saw Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania while I was sick and it was dreadful. It felt like, almost a parody of a Marvel movie that there were moments that felt like it was making fun of the classic Marvel tropes. There's a character who dies and they tr don't treat it very seriously. And it almost feels tongue in cheek, but not actually accomplishing that. Uh, this movie's terrible. It's written poorly. It's shot poorly. You might be wondering, Nathan, why do you keep watching these Marvel movies? Again, I was not going to see this except I was really sick. So I decided to. And to be frank, I haven't seen the Marvels. I did see Guardians 3, and I don't think it's that much better. But that's not landing on this list, because I think Ant-Man and the Wasp is the strongest argument, continued argument, against the continuation of this current Marvel Cinematic Universe. It doesn't feel like there's any point. It feels like it's spinning its wheels. It feels like it's not working to anything all that exciting they're trying to make every new movie really like a big event thing and it incredibly hurts this franchise in general but specifically the ant-man franchise which i enjoy the first ant-man and ant-man of the wasp i think they're both really good small scale sort of adventures that were kind of carried by their humor and heart this movie is a giant scale adventure that's carried by stupid cgi that looks terrible and no one in the cast giving an iota of an effort. It's terrible. If you want a bad time and you're really sick, 
I would recommend this. Wow, that's harsh. Uh, never seen that, never gonna. So I can't comment. What I can comment on is, and again, this isn't necessarily a bad movie, but it's just a movie that I found very disappointing. And that's Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. This had a lot of really strong buzz behind it. And I'm a big fan of fantasy. We've dabbled in Dungeons and Dragons ourselves. Uh, I don't think we did a very good job at it. Like, I, would, I would definitely characterize it as dabbling. <laughs> yes. Um, but we have some experience yeah. with it. Um, I've played a few video games. Uh, that doesn't really matter. So I know a little bit. I, I have some relationship with this franchise. And of course... The really good reviews, I thought, okay, this is going to be a really solid, simple, clean, fun sort of movie. And ultimately, I was disappointed. Everything you've heard about this movie being the Marvel formula applied to just a different genre is true. The snarky, sort of breezy uh, humor, the like self-deprecating, often somewhat slapstick kind of comedy, the ultimately lightweight and kind of impactless atmosphere of things that really should be quite compelling and severe that pose a pretty serious threat to uh, what's going on or just just not really handled with much gravitas. Um, I found some parts of it funny and they I really liked the practical uh, monster costumes and prosthetics that they made, they look really cool. And there's some decent CGI, but also a lot of the characters are very thin, just like with Marvel. Their arcs are pretty underdeveloped, just like with Marvel. And I was disappointed with it, just like with Marvel. Again, not a terrible movie, not even really a really bad movie, but a very disappointing one for the hype that it got and for Again, the potential that it had to be the shot in the arm that the fantasy genre, at least on film, kind of needs right now. Interesting. I didn't see that because I knew it was going to be all of the things that you just said. Uh, instead, I saw the second one. We've already talked about this on the podcast, so I'm not going to belabor this point too much. Indiana Jones 5, very disappointing movie, really just painfully mediocre, which is tough for a franchise that has had such phenomenal highs and then just like shockingly just stupid lows. I don't think it's as bad as Crystal Skull. I also don't think there's a compelling reason for anyone to ever rewatch this movie unless you're trying to do an Indiana Jones marathon for Indiana Jones 6, which I'm really anticipating <laughs> in 2034. When Indiana Jones is out there in his wheelchair chasing bad guys. Yeah. Really disappointing. Again, we did an episode on it. I don't need to belabor the point. I'm sure if you've seen it, you know why this movie's bad. And if you didn't see it, you probably had a good reason for doing that. Uh, yes, that is my least favorite movie of the year. This is a movie that I do think is disappointing, yes, but disappointing because it's very bad. I would say I I probably would not give it the the um I would not cut it the mediocre slack. I would say that this is just a very bad movie. Not at all in keeping with the tone or the aesthetic of the previous movies. Just very silly and dumb and wacky and yeah, just I this movie frustrates me. Because 
there is it we don't gain anything from this movie like we don't mm. gain any new understanding of the character or the mythos or the world that he inhabits and i think that if another indiana jones movie was going to be made which it shouldn't have been but if you really have to do it quote unquote have to then it really needs to be more than just a poor attempt at just another Indiana Jones movie. Like this mm -hmm. needs to be something, something more, something better, something more interesting, something that we haven't, haven't seen before. And admittedly, there are some things that we haven't seen before in this movie, like a World War II era German plane flying over the bat, the siege of Syracuse. But I never wanted to see that because that's really dumb. So most of the things that we haven't seen before, I was just like, man, I wish I, I wish we never did see that. Really disappointing. Please just let it go. Let this be the last one. Let's just move on with our lives while Indiana Jones still has some dignity left in him. <laughs> just let him, just let him sleep, guys. Just let him rest. Let him re Just let him hang out in his apartment, yelling at the youths for uh, cranking up their radio too loud and teaching archaeology to deeply apathetic classes of students. Wow. Uh, yeah, obviously I agree. On the subject of things that we wish we could unsee is my least favorite movie from this year, Saltburn, uh, the new oh. film from Emerald Fennel. I, I, I don't know if I would say I'm in the minority, but I'm definitely in a group of people who really liked Promising Young Woman. I thought it was really good. It was really clever. It was consistently entertaining in a way that really surprised me. I kind of went in blind to that movie. And it was one of the best movie watching experiences I had of the year it came out. So I was really excited for this movie. And it was terrible. It felt like, again, it felt almost like a parody of all of the things that Emerald Fennel is praised for. It wasn't subversive. It wasn't clever. It was trying really hard to be shocking. And instead, it just had a lot of moments that made me want to die and made me wish I had not paid money to be viewing what I was viewing currently. It feels poorly made in a way that is really baffling to me for a movie that definitely had a lot of talent behind it. Uh, it looks really good because Linus Sandgreen is going absolutely crazy on the camera, but nothing that's in the camera is things I want to be seeing, really. It's kind of a one-trick pony. It never develops anything beyond a very surface level. I'm going to try and cut this off quick because I could talk for a really long time about everything that makes this movie terrible. But it's just unsurprising, uncompelling, uninteresting. And it's a slog. It's too long. It's terrible. Uh, the actors are trying their best. But it's it really, I'd say, the full brunt of the issues with this movie lie at Emerald Fennel's feet. The script is terrible, and the script has nothing for any... No one could make this movie work. Least of all, someone only on their sophomore film. And, yeah, it a huge disappointment, to be sure, but also a terrible movie. Uh, yeah, I haven't haven't seen that. I'm, I probably wasn't going to. I'm definitely not going to in light of such vitriol from Nathan. Uh, I, uh, I hope that Emerald Fennel can turn it around because I also liked Promising Young Woman a fair amount. So here's hoping for number three. But on the subject of more positive notes, let's now talk about something that's not on the screen 
but is in our hands. I'm talking, of course, about literature. Nathan and I are both men of letters, by which I mean we're both readers. Uh, we like to read the odd book. This is completely pointless because this is a purely audio presentation, but on my desk, I have a tower of literature that I need to read, of books that I need to read, and I've asked for some books for Christmas, so that tower is only going to grow while I work on uh, In Search of Lost Time. But that doesn't matter. No one cares. What does matter is the books that we've read in the year that was. Nathan, let's hear it. We want to hear what your favorite books I hear, that you're going to talk about two books from this year that you read that you really enjoyed. Give us some recommendations. Yeah, I really enjoyed a lot of books this year. I'm kind of lucky that I feel like a lot of the books I decide to read do end up being books that I do enjoy, that I find uh, very entertaining or very compelling. Uh, the two I'm going to talk about are kind of the two that have sat with me the most, that I've kind of returned to in thinking the most. One is a fiction book, one is nonfiction. My fiction book is going to be Don Quixote by Miguel, Miguel, Michael? De Cervantes. It would probably be Miguel. Miguel, I think, is what his first name is. This is a classic book. You might have heard of this. You've probably heard of the saying that was born from this book, uh, Tilting at Windmills. Don't go tilting at windmills. Or the word quixotic. Or, yes, or the word uh, incredibly influential book. I found it so much better than I expected it to be. It's like almost 800 pages long. I thought it would be very dry, very boring. I found it incredibly entertaining. It's shockingly funny for having been written, uh, I think almost 500 some years ago. The, it feels funny in a way that is like astonishing to me. It feels funnier than some of the stuff that I've seen this year or some of the stuff that I've read from recent years. But it's very entertaining, very funny, but it's also an incredibly interesting just like literature exercise that he's kind of the culture that Cervantes is writing this book in. It's basically 800 pages of how much he hates the current dominant like genre of books. This is, I said for a lot of people, like a helpful analogy is this is like if Martin Scorsese made a four and a half hour long movie that was just about how much he hated Marvel movies, how much he huh. thinks they suck, how much, and not just like a critique of they're bad in general, but Cervantes is critiquing the people who like these. He's critiquing the culture that would be praising books of this type. He is doing the most wholesale critique of a genre I've ever seen. When they say haters never sleep, Cervantes was the hater who never slept. He was up here hating. It's so funny. It's very fourth wall breaking in a way that also feels very modern, that he's kind of tongue in cheek. It's technically two books, the first one and the sequel that came out five years later. And the sequel basically opens with Cervantes directly addressing critiques of the last one and saying, you're stupid, but I guess because you're whiny, I'll change some of the ways I've written this book. So Don Quixote, I think, is an incredibly interesting book. I found it very compelling for a lot of different reasons. The other book that I'm going to recommend is a nonfiction book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's a Austrian, Austrian book uh, written by an Austrian Jew. Basically, 
about what he saw as the psychological benefits of finding meaning and how it helped basically Jews in the Holocaust. He was put in a camp early in as soon as pretty much as soon as Germany took over Austria. He was put in a camp. He was then in a camp for the entirety of the war. He lost his wife and pretty much everyone he knew to the camps. And the book is very much coming from that experience and what he sees as the things that helped him to not die during that experience. I thought it was one of the most life affirming books. It had so many sections that put things that I think I've always felt were true into like language that I could then say to other people. It's an incredible book. The way he looks at life is fascinating. The way he looks at the events that happened is really interesting, I think. So it's not a super long book. I would recommend it literally to anyone. It's a little bit of a bummer, obviously, because it's about the Holocaust. But I think at the end of the day, it's much more trying to get you to think about how you're living your life and what is giving your life meaning and how you can give your life meaning basically wherever you are. Wow, very interesting. I don't think I've heard you talk much about that book, but you definitely sold me on it. I'm going I, to put that on my list. I really like it. Maybe we'll talk more about it after the <laughs> podcast. I'll add it to the, my stack there. It's very um, thin. It wouldn't add a lot to There is, to be clear, he's not lying. There is a stack of, it looks like six or seven books or of quite large size. Yeah, some of those books are pretty girthy. But very interesting. Let's keep moving. My favorite book from this year is very similar to Nathan's first pick because it's a classic. Oh, yeah. It's something that you've probably heard of. You've probably read at least part of it in high school. I'm talking about Moby Dick or The Whale by Herman Melville. Uh, I do not remember why I decided to read this book. Um, it just, like, the fancy struck me. I did, in college, I had uh, a kind of phase where I read a bunch of classic books uh, like Frankenstein or, um, oh gosh, I can't even remember what the name is. Uh, oh, no. 1984? Uh, no, not 1984. Uh, Huxley. Um, oh, Brave New, Brave New World. World. Yes, Brave New <laughs> okay. World. Um, it doesn't matter. And Moby Dick kind of, I kind of missed it because I looked at it and I was like, dang, that's a really long book. It clocks in at a respectable 642 pages all about whaling. <laughs> <laughs> but I decided to take the plunge and man, I loved this book. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that I like about it. Uh, the main thing is probably Captain Ahab is one of the great characters of American literature, in my opinion. He's such a fascinating and surprisingly complex and intricate and sophisticated portrait of a completely ruined man. He honestly reminds me of a lot of modern rage peddlers. Mm. Um, I almost said, you know, there, but I beat it. This has also been the year of defeating, you know. Uh, but none of your white whale. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Vast, <laughs> ye vast and unconquerable pillar words. Um, no, just the way that he sort of stirs his crew into a frenzy and gets them to conquer, to try to conquer the whale, the, that he gets them to think that they've been wrong, that they're being challenged, because mm. he thinks he was sort of, he was sort of wronged and he was uh, 
challenged by Moby Dick, who, if somehow you don't know, actually, I've talked to a lot of people about this book and they didn't know anything about it. So if you didn't know, Moby, the reason for Captain Ahab's pursuit of Moby Dick, a legendary white whale, is because he had an encounter with the whale where it ripped off his leg. And so this basically drove him insane and led him on this years-long, globe-spanning pursuit of Moby Dick. And it's absolutely fascinating. And he's such an interesting, compelling character, the way that he, the way that he convinces other people to help him in his pursuit and the way that he convinces himself to keep on going despite numerous signs of that maybe he's that maybe he's wrong that he's attributing he's attributing a malevolence to a natural creature that probably mm. doesn't have it that didn't re that didn't rip off his leg because it didn't like him it ripped off its leg his leg because he was trying to kill it <laughs> um, but no there's a, there's one of my favorite parts of the book is where he actually tells someone this like companion of his the cabin boy he says he tells the cabin boy to leave him alone because the cabin boy makes him feel better about himself. And when he doesn't feel better, when he doesn't feel bad about himself, when he doesn't feel this consuming, sadistic, frenzied need to get after Moby Dick, then he doesn't, he doesn't have the drive that he needs. Mm. And so I thought that's a really, honestly, insightful way into the way that people keep themselves in these these spheres of rage and bitterness and, because they kind of get addicted to it. It's yeah. an addictive feeling. And that's just Ahab. There are so many great characters in this. Ishmael is really good. His friend Queequeg is really good. Um, there, this, this book is really funny. There are a lot of moments that legitimately made me laugh out loud. There are some pretty intimidating sections where Ishmael goes in granular detail <laughs> about the finer points of whaling, the history of whaling, the mechanics of whaling, the biology of whales. But I just found that interesting and kind of funny because a lot of this, a lot of this book is tongue in cheek is like, there is some inherent absurdity as the book is pointing out to Ahab's quest of trying to get revenge on something that doesn't really operate in the way that he thinks it does or it might the question of whether or not moby dick is supernatural is left up in the air but it's also just an epic sweeping story it's very romantic not in terms of like romance but in terms of the aesthetic of it's just very i don't know i i really struggle to de describe the aesthetic of romanticism so i'm hoping you just kind of feel me on this one but yeah the last section when they're actually on moby dick's tail and they spend like four days having different encounters with him is some of the most thrilling, engaging writing that I've ever had the pleasure of consuming. It's a fantastic book, really interesting, really funny, really compelling. If you're scared off by it, I definitely understand. I'm not sure I would recommend this to anyone. I would say if you think you have like the mindset for it, because you definitely need the right mindset going in, uh, with a lot of older literature, you kind of need to meet it on its own terms. Yeah. So if that's you and you haven't gotten around to Moby Dick, I would say absolutely give it a read. And guys, let's have ourselves a really good 
modern adaptation. Like, what are we doing? This is gold. I can, I can see in my mind the perfect adaptation of this book, and no one's done it yet. <laughs> wow. That's really exciting. You've talked to me before about how much you loved Moby Dick, and you've definitely sold me on it in terms of sometime in the future maybe reading it. <laughs> it sounds similar to when I try to talk about War and Peace. I love War and Peace. There's huge sections of War and Peace that is just Tolstoy outlining like philosophy of history or Russian history that is not the most like spine tingling, exciting things, but it serves a purpose in the book and in what Tolstoy is trying to do. So I, it sounds like these sections about whaling are <laughs> a similar sort of thing. Anyway, let's get back to movies. This is a movie podcast. Yeah, we don't want to display This is our bread and butter. Yeah. So we're going to do our top three favorite movies that we saw this year period our favorite movie i mean not period because there's some overlap for me but these are our favorite movies we saw this year that maybe didn't come from this year so it's gonna be our top three elliot what was what was one of yours uh i'm going to start right off with probably my favorite movie of this year that i didn't see this year and that's boiling point if you didn't know this is a 2019 movie i think starring a man whose name i've literally just forgotten um but it's kind of hook is that it literally is shot in one long unbroken take. Like there's no trickery. There's no uh, hiding the cuts. It is one long unbroken shot. Um, so right off the bat, I respect the ever loving heck out of this movie for doing something like that. Because I mean, you have to be on at all times. You need to nail everything. Otherwise, you'll have ruined like hours and hours of work and shooting. So that's really cool. And it definitely pays off, I think, that it's not just a gimmick, it is something that really puts you in the ground floor because obviously it being in one long unbroken shot, they can't like have crane shots or establishing shots or any kind of cinematic sort of twists. You're always right there on the ground floor in the action. So that's great. But also it just tells this fantastic, simple story of a top chef at a restaurant who it's kind of similar to Locke, if you've seen that movie, in that it's just about him trying to spin a lot of plates that are crashing down around him, that he's he's got issues with his family, he's got issues with his business, he's got issues with his customers, and he's trying to juggle all of this while also run a functional business. And there's also really engaging side stories of the other characters as this like African-American waitress uh, is waiting on some people who are more than a little bit racist. And there's a, I don't know what the term for it is, but a woman who kind of like, she doesn't really run the show, but she's like out there, maybe like a hostess mm, might be the okay, right word. Yeah. Uh, who's trying to, who's this, who's trying to put on this facade of being really domineering and really uh, like take no take no crap kind of person, but in reality is very fragile and insecure. And honestly, it's all about reaching the boiling point. All of these characters reaching points where they just lose their business. Um, so it is never anything less than one hundred percent gripping uh, because of that, and because of the incredible acting and just the talent and the hard work that had to go into this movie. Fantastic. I would recommend this to anyone. Nathan, I really want you to see it. 
so you can then see Locke and realize how good that movie is. Um, but yeah, th this is a great movie. Get out there, give it a watch. I was trying to remember, I was like, man, I didn't know he liked it this much. And then I was like, well, he's talked about it before. Why didn't I see it? And then when you said it's like Locke, I was like, oh, it's because I think Locke is stupid and I don't want to Locke watch. being a movie that Nathan has not seen and therefore has no standing upon which to label it stupid. All right. Anyway, my one of my favorite movies that I saw this year that was not from this year is an old movie. I apologize. The All three of these are really pretentious sort of movies. But my first one is Day for Night. It's a French movie by iconic French director. I'm pretty sure it's Francis Truffaut. 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 Uh, about, it's kind of an early mockumentary style sort of movie. It doesn't have the talking heads of something like The Office or Parks and Rec. But it's a similar sort of thing that it's making fun of the subjects that it is ostensibly following. It's following uh, Francis Truffaut as he's playing a director trying to basically get a film shoot to work. I think it's a fantastic movie because it is so much just a takedown of anyone who's acting super pretentious and like movies are super amazing. I love movies and everyone in this movie loves movies. Truffaut loves movies. But at the end of the day, movies are not real life. The title of the film refers to the process by which you would film a scene meant for night during day and then just add a cover over it. So it would be day for night. And it's kind of building on that idea that movies are lying to you and movies are not real life. It is a super funny movie. There's a lot of really dry jokes. There's a scene where they can't get the cat to do what they want and the director just has a meltdown and yells like someone's got to get me a flipping cat who can act or like a cat who can act better than this one, which is kind of funny. Uh, there's other bits in the movie that I find really humorous. And especially as someone who loves movies as much as I do, it, I think it's kind of neat to get a reminder that it's like, hey, chill. It's not real life. It's a movie and it doesn't matter that much. So I really enjoyed it. It's a really fun, light sort of film that is just really entertaining and has, I think, a really nice message for any anyone out there who has a buddy who's like a cinephile and just won't shut up, make them watch this movie and then say, shut up about movies for a bit. Wow, I think that you would be that buddy for most people. Well, thank goodness I watched it then. But you don't, you haven't shut up. <laughs> well, that's because I gotta tell people about Day for Night. Uh, it's really, it's all very paradoxical. I haven't seen that, uh, uh, you don't have to say you haven't seen any of the movies I'm gonna recommend. So there you go. Uh, I've seen Truffaut's The Four Hundred Blows. I like that movie quite a bit. So and I'm planning on watching some other Truffaut movies. So maybe I'll get around to it. Uh, but my second movie is also a foreign movie, although it's a little bit less on the pretentious side. Uh, I'm talking about Shin Godzilla. Oh my goodness, interesting. So. I find Godzilla really fascinating. I've seen the original Godzilla, Shin Godzilla, all of the American ones, and uh, Godzilla Minus One. And I always found the Japanese ones to be a lot more interesting because they are much more reflections of the culture that they came from. Obviously, the original Godzilla is very famously um, a sort of, sort of, grappling with Japan's identity in the post-war era. Godzilla is modeled on victims of radiation burns from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. His, his like, 
mottled sort of blistering skin is supposed to evoke that. I find that kind of stuff fascinating too. That's why, that's one of the big reasons why I love watching foreign movies is just getting to see what people, the kinds of things that people choose to tell stories about and the way that they choose to tell those stories, I think tells us a lot about who they are, about the things that they value, the things that they're afraid of, uh, the things that they aspire to. Love all that. And so we come to Shin Godzilla, which is all of that basically, but with modern special effects and more explosions and stuff. So it's basically like the perfect Godzilla package. It's less about nuclear war and more about Japan's identity in the modern day. It's very critical of the bureaucratic state. There are a lot of like montages of people saying like, oh, well, we can't, it's kind of similar to uh, Ikaru in that oh. someone will go to like a department and be like, hey, this is a problem. Like, what do we, we need to do something about Godzilla? And they're like, oh, well, I'm not sure if this is our department. You need oh, to, my. you need to send this to someone else. And we need to all vote on this. We need to have committees and expertise. So there's a lot of red tape that's kind of getting in the way of dealing with the giant <laughs> uh, radioactive monster. <laughs> so I find that really interesting. I also just found it fascinating to see the way that the that Japan views its military, uh, because obviously this military, such as it is, it's not like a, it's not really they don't have a standing army. They are, I believe, still obligated under post-war treaties to not have. They're forbidden from having a standing standing army. So the military that they uh, sort of, um, what's the word like, call up. Mm. all of them are constantly talking about like we've never actually been in a combat situation like we've never fired our weapons outside of a, a, outside of a gun range so i find i find that kind of stuff really interesting and it's not just that like in, a, in an academic sense like i think that it's well done it's well made it's communicated very effectively through the absurdity of people like having to assemble committees and vote on actions when a giant lizard is wandering around blowing stuff up. And it's also just a very spectacular movie. Godzilla's um, atomic breath in this is probably the most powerful I've ever seen. Like there's a there's a looker of a shot that's like it from orbit. And it's just like deleted this entire swath of Japanese countryside. It's a good looking movie, to be honest. Um, so yeah, uh, it's got the spectacle, it's got the like the themes, it's got the cultural analysis. This movie's like tailor-made for me, man. Um, so yeah, I would say if you're a fan of Godzilla or if you like that kind of cultural exchange of foreign movies, absolutely give Shin Godzilla a watch. That's, a, that's another movie I have ignored your repeated recommendations for me to watch, but that does actually sound really good. So I think I'll probably try and get around to that. Anyway, my next recommendation is They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Which is a 1970s, early 70s, late 60s, I believe, movie. It's about a Depression-era dance marathon. They would have dance marathons where people would sign up and basically had to dance for an interminable amount of time. and Longer than would be appropriate. Yes. And if you were the final kind of team pair, you had to be in duos, uh, you would win a huge cash prize, a great cash prize, a huge cash prize for the Depression era. 
and they would sell tickets to these bucks. things. Yeah, it was not a ton, but they would sell tickets to these things so viewers could come and support the people. It was almost, I would compare it very much to a, like a sense of the Hunger Games is sort of the vibe of the thing. But this movie blew my mind. It was, it's one of the most stressful and tense and just like ruthlessly edge of my seat movies I've ever seen. And it is about such an innocuous sort of subject. I mean, it is so much more nerve wracking and awful than The Hunger Games, even though it's about a much more ostensibly humane thing that they're forcing people to do. The title refers to uh, kind of the closing line of the movies that it's like, why would you care about us? They shoot horses, don't they? That it's like, it's all, all of the characters in the movie feel like they're nothing more than cattle or livestock, that they're forced into these things. It is a ruthlessly depressing movie. It has a sequence where everyone is having to like run a race and whoever loses the race gets eliminated where no one's really running because they've been standing for like days on end. So everyone's kind of walking quickly. I'm not joking. This speed walking competition almost gave me a heart attack. It was just awful. It's so well shot, so well acted. It is such a fascinating sort of premise. And the fact that the movie is as just like emotional and tense as it is, is in my opinion, just a huge like you know, compliment to everyone who worked on this movie that it comes across so strongly, despite it being about nothing flashy, nothing super showy, again, like the Hunger Games or something. And instead, it's a million times what that, you know, sort of series or that idea is trying to get us to think about. So it's a fantastic movie. It's also an interesting movie because it's one of the most nominated at the Oscars films of all time. And it won I think nothing, or it definitely didn't win Best Picture, but it was nominated for director, writing, actor, actress, uh, in so many awards, and then it didn't end up winning anything, which is why I ended up watching it. But I think it I, it's a huge recommend for me. It's a fascinating piece of our history. Um, maybe don't watch it if you're feeling down, if you're feeling a little glum, because it would definitely bum you out. But it's such a good movie. You said this was early 70s that it was made? Yeah, so early 70s looking back on the Depression, which is another thing that makes it interesting. There's other movies like this that it's like, in the 70s they were better off, but they felt worse because they were just kind of bummed about things. Well, yes, early 70s is a very pessimistic time for yeah. America. you got Vietnam going on. Um, the Cold War is, I mean, the Vietnam is like the ultimate Cold War uh, problem. Yeah. But yeah, that sounds really interesting. I really want to watch that. I sat down to watch it a few weeks ago, and it is nowhere. It does yes. not exist online. Yeah. So that's something that I'll need to watch through other means. But good stuff. My last one is going to be Fences. Um, this is, I think, 2016. It's an adaptation directed by and starring Denzel Washington. It's an adaptation of Nathan's racist. He doesn't like Denzel Washington. <laughs> I'm rolling my eyes because I've heard him talk about fences before. And because he's racist. No, I'm cutting all of this. <laughs> um, it's an adaptation of the play of the same name. I can't remember who, who the name of the guy who wrote it, but he's the same person who wrote Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the play. And it is set in this, like, Oh gosh, Philadelphia, I think? Some city. Uh, 
where, and it follows the, the patriarch of this small family of African-Americans as his control over his life and his family kind of starts slipping away. Um, so it follows his uh, very, we get to see his very authoritarian parenting style towards his son that ultimately ends up pushing him away. It's not really a spoiler alert. It, it's pretty obvious that's where it's going. We get to see his, uh, his kind of like his bitterness over not getting to have had a chance to play baseball. He says because it was because he, he is an African-American, there are some questions raised about that later on. But aside from the fantastic acting, I mean, Denzel Washington, he is one of the greats. Um, he's probably my favorite actor, definitely up there. Um, and he does, he's absolutely bringing it. Viola Davis plays his wife. Um, she's amazing. She's a great actress. She does a great job here. Why are you squinting at me? I'm just wondering where you're going with this. Oh, well, it's, uh, it's, so the acting is fantastic. It's honestly a pretty good looking movie for taking place mostly in one area, but it's such a great character study of pretty much all of these characters. Like everyone gets a moment in the sun to like have these very theatrical monologues where they lay out like, like his wife is, uh, is like, you're, you only get upset about yourself and you only talk about your sacrifices and what you do for this family. Uh, I almost said it. It was really close. <laughs> but like, what about me? I've done, the, I've been doing the same thing this entire time. I've been right there with you and haven't really gotten much recognition for that. The son has stuff about the demands of his father and about his father's maybe unwillingness to see how far, to see the progress that has been made in the area of civil rights in America. And he kind of feels like that's holding him back. It's all very interesting. It's interesting, kind of similar to the way that Shin Godzilla is in that it gives a look into the kinds of conversations and thoughts that are going on or were going on. I think this is like maybe an eighties play, not hundred percent sure, but these conversations that were happening that are still happening in the African-American community uh, that I find really interesting and just it's such a compelling, brilliantly acted character study of a bunch of different characters who all have legitimate claims to kind of being pissed off about a lot of stuff. And some of them give into that. Others kind of try to make the most of it. Um, and the movie doesn't movie slash play never really comes down on the side of it's of who's right and who's wrong. It sort of holds it out to the viewer to make their conclusions. I always love it when that happens. So yeah, it's definitely not a barn burner. Uh, it's not very spectacular or cinematic, but it's a really interesting, really well acted, slow burning, compelling and engaging character study that if that's your thing, I say go for it. And if that's not your thing, like Nathan, you're just racist. Okay, no, you should definitely cut that. <laughs> Oh, you've recommended this before. It's like three hours long, is it? It is. It's it's two hours and significant change. Okay. Well, see, that's kind of the reason why. I, it was nominated for Best Picture, so it's always been kind of on my radar. And I do like Denzel Washington, despite what my brother would have you think. So maybe someday I'll get around to watching it. Um, my final movie from this year that I saw this year not from this year, not from this year that I saw this year is Ingmar Berkman's The Virgin Spring. 
which I don't want to go too in-depth into kind of the plot because I didn't know much of the plot going into this movie, and it really blew me away. I think this is a fantastic... I saw one review that kind of that said it felt like an ancient tale, like something you would be gathered around a fire to hear, something you would hear, you know, in the medieval period. It feels so epic in scale in the sense that it's about such huge ideas as kind of guilt, religion, whether or not God really sees what we're trying to do here on earth, which I thought was done so well. It looks incredible and it does such a fantastic job of kind of pulling this thread throughout the entire movie as it kind of goes through multiple kind of changes of where you're not sure where the movie is going to necessarily go and where it's going to land. And when it finally does land, it lands on such an incredibly emotional moment. I was really moved by it. I think it's an incredible movie. It's probably one of the best religious movies I've ever seen. So I thought it was amazing. Ingmar Berkman is a great classic director. This is this movie is in Dutch or whatever, so it is a foreign film. But um, I really enjoyed it. I liked it quite a bit. Isn't Ingmar Bergman German? I thought he was Dutch. I thought he was from like Denmark or something. Oh, I, I don't know. Doesn't matter. I, I, I just say that because Max von Sydow was in Seventh Seal and yeah. Max is German. Is he? Yeah. Well, he's in this too. He's in all of them. He's in most of them. Well, maybe he's not German. And I'm just... It doesn't matter. No one cares. He's That's, European. Yes. He, he's from the Eastern Hemisphere. Yeah. Uh, that sounds great. That sounds right up my alley, honestly. Uh, well, I've told you about these movies before. I don't remember. I don't pay attention to anything you say unless we're doing the podcast. Um, no, I've only seen Seventh Seal from Ingmar Bergman. I like it okay. I, it's not my favorite It's movie. not my favorite. Um, but he's definitely a director that I want to look into more. So, yeah, I would say that I'm interested in all three of those movies that you described. Uh, and hopefully our audience is as well. Well, I mean, for the record, I'm interested in the movies you talked about. Thanks too, for like. throwing me a bone. <laughs> I was just going to move on and not even give you the chance to make some kind of smart remark. But let's move on. We've got some other things to talk about before we get to the big category, the best picture. Best picture. Um, First, we have to talk about best TV show. Uh, I watch way, way, way fewer TV shows than I do movies. Um, Obviously, they're just a lot longer uh, it's a much more significant time investment, but I've still managed to see a few TV shows this year. Nathan has as well. So, Nathan, why don't you start? Uh, talk about your favorite TV show. It's going to really annoy me, but uh, you have to say your piece. Yeah, it's going to annoy Elliot because my favorite TV shows that I saw this year, and I actually watched more TV shows than I usually do because a bunch of the shows that I really like got a new season this year. So I watched, you know, the new season of Barry, the new season of It's Only Sunny in Philadelphia, the new season of I Think You Should Leave. And my favorite new season of a show that I really liked was the newest season of Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror. He came back absolutely swinging after, to be honest, the kind of mess that was the fifth season of this show. He came back with a sixth season that was firing on all cylinders. We got classic sci-fi premises. We got great twists. I called most of them, except for one. 
But this season's great. The first episode was really smart, felt almost like a response to the fact that Black Mirror is so pessimistic and cynical and that constantly swimming in pessimism and cynicism maybe isn't that great for the human condition. Uh, the second episode was probably my favorite of the season. I thought I had a fantastic coda that made the entire episode kind of take on a different feel. Uh, the third episode I actually watched with Elliot. It's kind of a really good, just solid sci-fi story. It doesn't have a fantastic twist. You can kind of guess maybe where it's going, but it does a good enough job throwing red herrings in there that you will think it will go in a different direction. So I really like that. And then the last two episodes are just bonkers. Genuinely had moments that made me go, oh, what on earth? And my draw dropped. Like the most surprising Black Mirror has been in a really long time. It goes in maybe a questionable direction. I'm still trying to convince Elliot to review one of these new episodes. So hopefully one of these days I'll convince him and I'll be able to talk at more length about this kind of new direction that Black Mirror appears to be maybe going in. But I really liked this. If you liked previous seasons and you disliked season five justifiably, uh, come back for the sixth season because he is doing a great job. It's maybe not as good as like the best season ever of Black Mirror, but I think there's more than a few episodes to justify him returning to this well. Yeah, you, that's never going to happen. Um, <laughs> Dang I'm, it! I'm done with Black Mirror. I did not particularly care for that episode that you're talking about. I thought it was fine, but ultimately just more of the same like sadistic voyeurism <laughs> of Black Mirror that really puts me off. That's not what it is. Sure. It's about the real human condition. That's what people yeah. are like. You know, you were talking about like, uh, oh, it's it's about, it's critique itself about, it's pessimism and cynicism. And, but it did that, I'm assuming, in a very pessimistic and cynical way about the way that people become Captain Ahab, like just drowning in pessimism and cynicism. No, it, did, it didn't. Although I will admit... Really? It it's is, like a hopeful kind of, ah, oh, it's going to be alright. It's pretty hopeful. I don't know. This is what this is why we need to have it. The fans want to hear us argue. That's all the feedback. The fans going to hear us argue when we do the Big Lebowski. Oh, good grief. <laughs> That's never happening. Uh, no. That, whatever, man. Uh, I have not watched a whole lot of TV this year. I really liked Barry Season 4. I love Barry. That's a fantastic show. What? No, nothing. Okay. Um, and I thought that it went out, it definitely went out on a high note. Um, not the series, not a series high, but a strong, uh, a strong conclusion. Um, I watched Fall of the House of Usher. That show sucks. I don't want to hear anything about, wow, this show's amazing. No, absolutely not. It is a total misapplication of all the best parts of the gothic horror genre. I'm not going to talk about that. If we had a worst show segment, boy, would I be talking about Good Fall of the House right, of Usher. Get to your favorite show, Elliot. Yeah, my favorite show this year is kind of interesting because it, it lasted me basically the entire year. Like, I started it um, sometime in January, and I finished it last month. Um, and that's Peaky Blinders. Uh, what would happen is... I would watch it, I would get really engaged, and I would go on like a four or five episode binge, and then I would get distracted, and I would just walk away for like months at a time, and then I would come back, get engaged, and the cycle would repeat itself. But if you didn't know, this is a Netflix show created and written by Stephen Knight. It follows, it's not historically based, it's based on a real gang, That's that is the end of its <laughs> historical realism. 
Um, but an actual gang from Birmingham in the early 1900s called the Peaky Blinders, named as such because they kept razor blades sewn into the brims of their hats for weapons, and I guess they would oh. use that, use those to blind people. <laughs> Genius stuff. Wow. Um, no, the way I would describe this show is a much more stylized version of The Sopranos. It's the same kind of sprawling, epic crime family saga. I don't know why I'm explaining this particularly to Nathan, because Nathan hasn't seen The Sopranos. But if you think about mo crime movies like anything that Scorsese has made or Guy Ritchie, you're, you're half the way there. Probably more so with Guy Ritchie, because Guy Ritchie is very stylish uh, with his movies. He do be styling. <laughs> yes, he does. But it follows this the Shelby family is the leader of this gang, so it follows them across like a few decades of their history, trying to stake a claim for themselves, trying to sometimes trying to become more legitimate, sometimes uh, fighting more like bloody street level fights with other gangs. Um, there are a lot. It uses a lot of historical figures as characters. So like Churchill shows up. Um, oh gosh, Jesse Eden, I think, shows up. Uh, she was a labor leader, a communist oh, party sick. leader. <laughs> Oswald Mosley is the villain of the last season. Oswald Mosley being the founder and leader of the British party of fascists. Um, so I find that stuff really wow, interesting because yeah, I'm a history sick, guy. Really. <laughs> but no, uh, this show isn't particularly deep. It's not, it, unlike The Sopranos, it's not like, this really big, intricate character study of its main character. The main character is Thomas Shelby, played by the excellent Killian Murphy. So it's really just there for the cool factor, and it is very cool. Uh, you've probably seen really cringy dude bros posting pictures of Peaky, screenshots of Peaky Blinders with ca captions like, oh, don't mess with me, or like, I'm, a, I'm on that Sigma grind set, or whatever. The, <laughs> Whatever people say to make themselves sound cool when they're actually middle schoolers. Um, Sigma grinds. Isn't that a thing? <laughs> yeah, that is. No, you're correct. That would be the kind of caption that would be a Thomas Shelby picture. Yeah. Um, no. Uh, so it is. It's a really cool show. Uh, it's got a lot of cool characters. There's some really smart writing in terms of the way that they navigate their their problems and their conflicts. Uh, none of which I'll spoil here, obviously. Killian Murphy is great. There's a lot of great acting. I'm not going to lie. There are moments where the, like, cool guy energy goes off the charts and it it just, it ventures into cringe territory. <laughs> like, there are shots of people walking in slow motion and there's, like, a really hard rock song playing and I'm like, oh, this is kind of lame. <laughs> but... It's still a very rich, very entertaining kind of red meat show, um, if that makes any sense. It's something that you you just grab a beer, <laughs> um, make some popcorn, and kick back on the couch for. That's what I did when I watched it, is I yeah, uh, okay. drank some beer and had some popcorn. But no, it's, a, it's definitely, it's not prestige television, is what I'm saying. It's oh, not gosh. like Breaking Bad. It's something, it's an entertaining kind of spectacle, very cinematic. TV show. And I think it works. For the overwhelming most part, I think it works and it's very entertaining. Um, I'm glad I watched it. I, I'm probably not going to rewatch it in the same way that I rewatch Breaking Bad. 
<laughs> love Breaking Bad so much. Um, but I'm really glad I watched it, and I would I would recommend it to fans of Breaking Bad or The Sopranos who want something a little bit more simple and a little bit a uh, little bit less complicated and a little bit more spectacular. Mm. Well, that's neat. I haven't watched Peaky Blinders because I also don't have a lot of time for television shows. The other thing I don't have a lot of time for, but that you, Elliot, have, it seems like, just time coming out of your earlobes for is video games. Well, so last year we did do a favorite video games. I have not played any video game besides Enter the Gungeon for any amount of time this year. But Elliot has played some video games. Elliot, what was the state of video games in 2023? Let our listeners in. What were the games that you enjoyed? Uh, well, I just want to clarify. I don't have time for video games. Oh. I just play them anyway. <laughs> it's just something that I do very <laughs> irresponsibly. Um, I do want to point out that Nathan did actually play another video oh, game this year. <laughs> he gave it his best shot, but ultimately it proved too much for him. Nathan, do you want to tell the listeners about Resident Evil 2? I attempted to play Resident <laughs> Evil 2, and because of just the base level stress in my life, which Elliot finds humorous for some reason, I could not find it in myself to continue playing a game that was creating more stress in my life. Too and scary. I did this in February, <laughs> and he's still bringing it up. If you listen to our Night of the Living Dead episode, we mention... That, we're, that I'm playing, I think, Resident Evil 8 at the time. And I mentioned that you're playing Resident Evil 2. And it was just too much for him. Couldn't do it. Wimped out. He's a loser. Jeez. <laughs> uh, no, I understand that it's hard. I understand that it's a scary game. But I find that very funny. I wanted to make sure everyone got to enjoy that. No, this has been a pretty good year for games. Um, I have not played a whole lot for reasons of funds uh, rather than time. I have not played a whole lot of the like big ticket items. Um, like Baldur's Gate 3, which I definitely don't have time for. Um, uh, I don't have access to a Nintendo console, so... Uh, Tears of the Kingdom. Tears of the Kingdom, yeah. Super Mario Bros. Wonder, Alan Wake 2, uh, that kind of thing I just really don't have the money for. But I did play Resident Evil 4 Remake. I really liked that. That's probably my favorite game that I've played from this year, either that or Dredge, which is a fishing simulator that's also a Lovecraftian sort of story. It's a lot cooler than it sounds. But my my favorite game that I played this year is, like, will surprise no one who knows video games because it's frequently in the best of all time lists, and that is Hotline Miami. I suck at this game really hard. I Part of it is I definitely think it was designed to be played on keyboard and mouse. It was not designed for controller. But that does not excuse me all the way. I'm really bad at this game. But if you didn't know, it's a top-down, ultra-violent shooter that just follows this nameless character who the player base has dubbed Jacket as he goes around performing hits on rough, on cells of the Russian Mafia. Um, there's not a whole lot of exposition or story or dialogue it's very surreal. It's very feverish. In it, it's got this really loud. Nathan, you've seen it before. I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got this really loud, colorful palette. Um, it's got this like dreamlike atmosphere of ultraviolence and uh, bizarre things that start to happen as the story goes on that I won't spoil. And I can't say that this game like challenged me intellectually. I mean, it challenged me skill wise. 
but its atmosphere is so unique. Like I, I legitimately have never played anything else quite like it, or that made me feel quite the same way because it's always putting in front and center the violence of what's happening. Like it's a very violent game, but it's, I don't think it's gratuitous. I think that it is inviting the player to reflect on the kind of pleasure that they derive from wreaking digital violence. And it does so in such a unique, recognizable aesthetic. And with, I kid you not, one of the most incredible soundtracks I have ever listened to in a video game. I listen to this casually like every day. It is, I think in Spotify Wrapped, one of the songs from Hotline Miami was in my top five most played songs. Wow. And I played Hotline Miami like over the summer, like mm. in late summer. So this soundtrack is incredible. But yeah, there's not a lot I can say about this game that hasn't been said already. If you know, you know, is kind of the thing. And I'm not going to count that as a you know. But yeah, it's really hard if you're playing on <laughs> controller. I'm assuming it's not that much easier on keyboard and mouse. But yeah. Really just an interesting game in terms of its aesthetic and its vibes. Um, it's, it's hard to describe. Yeah. And I can't say that I would recommend it to anyone because it is very confronting in terms of the violence. But if video games are your thing and you're more comfortable with that, then I would say absolutely play Hotline Miami. It's on most handheld devices, so you could take it on the train. Play it on the, play it on the train and just try to make sure that no children look over your shoulder because that would be bad. Uh, that's funny. That's interesting. I haven't, I didn't know that you liked it that much. I knew you had played it and you had mentioned that you liked the soundtrack. I didn't know you liked it that much. Maybe I'll have to, once I have more time on my hands, maybe well, I'll go. And I mean, I knocked it. it out in like two hours. So maybe once I want to, I'll get around <laughs> to it. All right. Well, here we finally come to the final one. The main the, attraction. The main attraction. We're going to do our top five movies of the year. For time's sake. Yeah, how long gonna, are we at? <laughs> we're at 105. That's okay. For time's sake, I'm going to go real quick over my like kind of top four. And then I'm going to spend longer on my number one. Just because I do want to talk about it for a bit more. Because uh, I just absolutely adore this movie. But anyway, my top my top four, so or my top four below my top one. My top five, but not with my top one. My top five, bottom four. Yeah, top five, bottom four. Um, the first one I'm going to do, I'm going to say The Creator. Uh, if you heard us talk about it after we saw it, you know that I like this more than Elliot. This is continuing the tradition of me having a movie in my favorite movies of the year that you have in your least favorite movies. I just really enjoyed this. I'm not going to sit here and say it's the deepest, most engaging, most mind-boggling science fiction film that you can see this year. It's definitely not. For sure, that would be like Oppenheimer or something, if you consider Oppenheimer science fiction. But I think it is just so entertaining and is such a, an, an optimistic vision of, block, of what blockbusters could be. I went to this with uh, a woman friend, a girl, my girlfriend. I went to this with my girlfriend and she really enjoyed it. She's not really a movie person, so she really enjoyed it. I thought it was so funny, so well done. The acting is amazing. I saw in the Critics' Choice Awards that the kid who plays the like AI in the movie got nominated for Best Child Actor. I think they should win it by a lot because they do an incredible job carrying the emotional heart of this movie. 
again, it's not saying anything that deep about um, like AI or our place or humanity, but I don't think it's necessarily trying to. Its original title was True Love. It's more about John David Washington's love for the titular creator. Spoilers, I guess. That's my bad. I'll cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's more about love. I think it's really good. Uh, my other one, Past Lives. We saw this a while back. It looks like it's going to get nominated for Best Picture. I'm af kind of afraid it's going to get lost in the shuffle with all of... This was a fantastic year for movies. Just to be clear, this is such an incredible year for movies. I think every movie that's currently in the discussion for Best Picture is a movie that's very deserving of it, that I enjoyed quite a bit. Past Lives, I just think, is a stunningly small-scale examination of... The things that matter to humans, which don't look like a lot unless you're living in the moment. It does such an amazing job of being so emotional, and it went in a direction that I really, really enjoyed. So I loved Past Lives. Blackberry is another movie we saw earlier in the year. I don't think it's going to get any awards nomination. I am a sucker for tech bros telling business people in suits, this is how I'm about to change the world, and then them changing the world. It's such a fantastic movie, super funny. Glenn Howerton does an amazing job. Uh, and Jay Barakel, Barakel, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, also does a really great job. It's such a great movie just about the insane head-rushing highs you would experience if you built the infrastructure of the modern age and then the insane crushing lows that would happen as soon as technology moves past you. So Blackberry's up there. My last one, uh, it's the one we just saw a couple of hours ago, and that's The Holdovers. If you've seen anything about this movie, you've seen that it's heartwarming, that it's a Christmas classic, that it's bound to be something that people are going to enjoy for decades. I think that is 100% true. It is so well done. It is not at all a rote or cliche sort of movie, even though going into it, I was kind of afraid it might be. It did not go down that route. It was incredibly funny. All of the actors do such an amazing job. The kind of main boy in this is probably one of the protagonists I've rooted for hardest in a movie. I just was so desperately wanting him to do well in life because it's such, just such a beautifully well done portrait of someone who's young, who's trying to do stuff and is maybe falling short because of some things outside of his control and just... It's amazing. It is such a great movie. If you're an old person, you should go and see it and be like, wow, look, they do make great movies still. <laughs> but those are those are my top five, bottom four. Yeah, so I'll start out with the, our shared item. That's The Holdovers. I also absolutely love The Holdovers probably a lot more than I was expecting to. I like Alexander Payne as a director. I really like Sideways. I really dislike Election. <laughs> So this is his third movie that I've seen, so this was kind of the decider. Um, but yeah, he he pulled it out. Good job, Alexander Payne. So I agree with everything Nathan said. Don't have a lot to add there. Um, I'm going to talk about another movie that's going to annoy Nathan in the same way that the creator annoyed me. That is They Cloned Tyrone. Um, this is a Netflix movie that was released, I can't remember when, but... It was released on the same day as Barbie. Wow. That was a choice. Um, so it was released on the same day as Barbenheimer. It is a throwback to the kind of black exploitation movies, uh, movies like Shaft, if you've ever heard of that. It's a kind of like science fiction mystery thriller sort of thingy. 
Uh, it does some genre hopping, to be honest. It is caked in five layers of style. This is one of the most stylish movies I have ever seen in my life, and I just drank it up. I think this movie's style is so good. Its story is so pulpy. It's very pulpy, mm. and I am absolutely here for it. It's the, like, classic government conspiratorial uh story with lots of hidden labs and G-men and black cars. It takes place in this African-American neighborhood. The main character is John Boyega, uh, who is not Tyrone. His uh, name is... I can't remember what his name is. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. But uh, John Boyega, the performances in this are fantastic by John Boyega, Jamie Foxx. What's the woman's name? I don't know. I didn't like... If it's not clear from what he said. I did not love this movie as much as you did. So you're... Well, she does a great job as well. I'm sorry I can't remember your name. Um, but yeah, great performances. It is so funny. Like, I laughed so many times in this movie. I can't quote any of them because they all... All the best lines include copious amounts of swearing. But it's so funny. It's so entertaining. It's, again, got that interesting kind of cultural side to it. Um, this is a movie made by uh, an African-American director um, uh, speaking into African-American issues in a way that's really interesting, that I find really interesting. Um, and it makes some very interesting points about the community and about uh, what makes it kind of like what makes it easier for thing, real life things like the Tuskegee experiment, if you're familiar with that, to happen to African-American communities. Spoiler alert, something similar is happening here. But yeah, it is so stylish, so funny, so much fun. Um, I can't believe Nathan doesn't like it, but I love it. I would say absolutely give it a watch. Uh, so that's to number three. I'm going to go with... Where, oh, I lost it. <laughs> Sorry. He's got so many loose pieces of paper over there. Well, so if you hear any ruffling of pages... Yes. There you <laughs> go. That's the paper. Across the Spider-Verse. Um, oh, I love this. I know that Nathan has soured on it a little bit. He doesn't dislike it, but obviously it's not one of his favorite movies of the year. Um, it is for me. I think this is absolutely a worthy follow-up to Into the Spider-Verse, which is one of my favorite animated movies. I think that this matures things quite a bit. Uh, it makes it more emotional, more intricate, more intimate. Um, it, it basically goes in the exact right way I think that a sequel should go. It retains that manic, frenzied energy of the original, which, and it puts it to very good use here. Great job there. It's very funny. The action, there's an action sequence in the middle that is, that you've seen in the trailers when he's running from all the Spider-Men that is fantastic. It's one of my favorite of, favorites of the year. So great, great movie. Love that. Uh, number four, behind the big one, <laughs> is Leave the World Behind. Now, I'm definitely in the minority on this one. Um, the critical response has been positive, but not overwhelmingly so. The audience reception has been kind of negative, to be honest. Um, so I would, this is not going to be like a recommend to anyone. I do obviously think that it's a very good movie, but I think that it's a very good movie, particularly for a certain type of audience in which I find myself. Um, it's very slow burning. It's a sort of paranoid edgy not edgy but edge of your seat thriller mm. about a family that goes to an airbnb and then strange things start happening and a couple a not a couple a father and a daughter it's a couple in the book 
in the movie, it's a father and daughter come claiming that they own the house and asking to stay there because bad things are happening. And we never, it's kind of unclear what's going on. If it's an attack, if it's um, just something, if it's a natural event, uh, it's never really explained, but it, it manifests itself in a lot of really creepy, off-putting ways. This movie is very atmospheric. It's very tense and kind of eerie in the things that are happening, which I love. That's one of my favorite parts of the gothic horror genre. And this movie does have some gothic horror elements in it. But yeah, it's really tense, really edge of your seat, slow burning kind of thriller. So that's all me. I love I love things that are creepy, that are kind of unexplained, that are just a little bit weird. Um, and this movie has so much of that. So that's one of the big reasons I love it. I also love it because it's got Mahershala Ali in it. And Mahershala Ali is so good. I wish he could be in everything. But he does a fantastic job. Ethan Hawke is in it as well. I thought you knew this. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, <laughs> just reacting to this. Ethan Hawke is also a great actor. Julia Roberts, also another great actor. The woman who plays Marshall Ali's daughter, her name's like Mylena, something like that. I can't remember for sure. But she does a great job. Not a bad performance in the bunch. Um, yeah, it's got a kind of simple message, ultimate message about... Um, American society, but I think one that is prescient, or not prescient, that is salient, um, that is speaking to a legitimate kind of problem in the social fabric, but nobody wants to hear about my diagnosis of the problems in the social fabric. Uh, but even aside from that, I think it's just a really good, well-paced, well-done thriller that absolutely thrilled me and really immersed me in the kind of atmosphere that I absolutely love being in, immersed in. It's kind of similar in terms of atmosphere to Cloverfield. If I was going to ask if it was like 10 Cloverfield Lane, because that sounds like Cloverfield exact... and tell 10 Cloverfield Lane. Um, so yeah, I think you should watch it, because you're a big Ethan Hawke fan, and you also really like Mahershala Ali. So I think this, this one would be a good one for you. And if you're more amenable to the slow-burning kind of unanswered questions that this movie is very much trading in, then I think give it a go as well. But if not, then I would say you might want to skip it. Wow. Okay, I'm definitely going to want to watch that. You sold me. You sold me on one movie that you talked about. about my, uh, my, the other, the three from... Uh, oh, you were just lying? <laughs> no, I'm just, you know, I'm just coddling <laughs> you. Anyway, anyway. Now we come to the big one. The big I wanted to save this one for last because this... Oh my gosh, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, this genuinely might be not just my favorite movie from this year, but might end up being my favorite movie from the decade. It's really early to make that call. I cannot overstate... There's a moment in this film, I'm just going to say, firstly, it's Asteroid City, Wes Anderson's newest movie. There's a moment in this film that in the theater it felt like my seat dropped out from under me. And I was seeing something that almost felt like it was only designed for me. It felt like one of the most powerful emo emotional experiences. I'm not choking up, to be clear. Yeah, I kind of just, tried, just swallowed a little bit I wrong. just swallowed wrong there. I'm not crying. It felt like just a stunning moment of a movie so distinctly speaking into something I was thinking about that I don't know if I can recommend it for everyone. I know this has received a lot of positive reviews, but maybe if you're not like a Wes Anderson person, you won't love it as much as other people. But it just felt like 
it had dropped out of the sky to just perfectly encapsulate things that I was feeling and then put them up on the screen and have another person feel that. It is so amazing. It is such a beautiful encapsulation of everything that makes Wes Anderson movies good. It's funny, it's well-made, it looks gorgeous, and it has such an incredible idea running through it of the nature of the world and how the created components or the things that feel like they're too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence that pulls us towards an idea of a higher power, but then the nature of the world pushing us away from a belief in that higher power and just this tension that exists between these two poles, this pole of a created seeming world and the pull of the random nature of the world, pulling us in two different directions. It feels like the movie is about a lot. I think it is such an amazing, he does a great job of weaving through it. Such a human story in so many different angles and facets. I rewatched it recently and I bumped my score up to a perfect score. It's a 10 out of 10 movie for me. I absolutely adore it. Elliot's about to just absolutely poo-poo on all of this stuff. But I loved it. I have not been able to get some parts of this movie out of my head. And I bring them up way too... This is the kind of movie I need day for night to just save <laughs> me from doing. Because I've been bringing up this movie in conversation way too much. But I absolutely adore it. And I cannot... Over I, genuinely, one of the greatest sequences I've ever seen in a movie. And I love that Nate, it makes Nathan happy. <laughs> uh, no, clearly this is a movie that speaks to Nathan on a very personal level. No one can argue with that. And I definitely think that that is what the movie is about. It's just it doesn't speak to me that in the same way. I think this is a good movie. Um, obviously, I'm not over the moon about it. Um, it's just not one that, like, it's, for Nathan, it's one of those movies that is, like, the 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 puzzle piece right that it perfectly fits in the the whatever the like little nub perfectly fits into the slot um it wasn't so for me uh i i like wes anderson's style uh, there we, we've talked a lot about style uh in this section i like his style i find it charming and i find it when it doesn't get out of control which it can sometimes um i find it very appealing uh but like in movies like uh, Dog Island or Isle of Dogs, where it gets like oh, way overboard, um, it can be a little much. So I don't dislike this movie. I don't think Nathan Nathan is wrong. I think that it's just not the right movie for me. My movie of the year, I'm not going to talk too much about because I've already talked about it at length in our review of it. I'm talking about Oppenheim. Christopher Nolan is my favorite director ever of all time in history, and he... He, I was looking for a big win for him after Tenet, which isn't bad, but is not his best movie. And he knocked it out of the park here. Uh, this really continues a trend in the movies that I've liked from this year in terms of it being about a very specific cultural and historical moment, um, which is stuff that I really enjoy. It's American history. It's history. Um, it is some history that I know about uh, so that I'm able to sort of like that it's it's fun for me to see the like people that I've heard about and the events that I've learned about, to see them realized on the big screen. A powerhouse, career best performance from Killian Murphy. I absolutely am pulling for him for 
best uh best actor at the Oscars. I'm pulling for Oppenheimer for best picture and Nolan for best director and all of the things because this is Nolan's usual technical mastery. Like David Fincher, Nolan is not in the business of making movies that look bad. Um, this movie is a looker. The Trinity test when the bomb is actually blown up is one of the most mind-boggling sequences I've seen in a movie in a really long time. This is, I think, top-tier Nolan, and top-tier Nolan is top-tier film, in my opinion. Um, yeah, really interesting. I love the historical elements. I love, it gave me so much to think about in terms of not just historical issues, but like philosophical issues about war and about weapons and about uh, the way that the responsibility that people have to acquiesce to or resist demands of society and of government. That's stuff, stuff that I find fascinating. Like I said in the review, I think that my, uh, the, the line that I would put on the box if I was asked to do so would be, it's a movie that I didn't want to leave in the theater. It's a movie that I've, that I've, that's really sat with me ever since I've seen it. It's a movie that I brought home with me that I think, thought about and talked about. I really want to read the book that it's based on, American Prometheus, to learn more about it. That's another thing. It it made me want to learn more about its subject matter, which is always, um, that's always a win for a historically based movie. And it's just, it's just thrilling and fascinating and entertaining. It's everything a movie should be, I think. Um, I know that Nathan isn't as big on it, but still likes it quite a bit. Um, so yeah, it, I would recommend this movie to everyone. If you just saw the Barbie half of Barbenheimer, rectify that immediately. Um, not that Barbie was bad, obviously, but just Oppenheimer is Oppenheimer. Yeah. So get that watch. Uh, see it on the biggest screen you can, which is probably just your TV, but make well, sure it's actually currently back in theaters oh, for like this week. There you go. Yes. Go see it in theaters. Um, make sure you've got the sound, you've got the screen, because this is a cinematic experience. Yeah. Um, like Interstellar, um, it makes it's one of those movies that makes me really like movies. It's one of those movies that France, Francis Truffaut needs to show me a, a day, a day for night for to get me to stop talking about it. Yeah, I agree. I really liked Oppenheimer. I kind of left it off my list partially because I knew it was going to top your list. So I knew it would get some airtime. I would consider it on par with any, well, I guess past lives. In the, I'd consider it on par with past lives in the creator, maybe not holdovers in Blackberry for me. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think the fact that it made a billion dollars is a huge, just like punch in the face to everyone for the past five years who's been saying, oh, cinema is dead and cinema is dying. No, my boy Nolan came out with a three hour long character study about a fairly gnarly piece of American history. And he made a billion dollars. I mean, this is a huge, obviously Barbie was influential yes. in that. The memes didn't hurt. Yes, but I think this is a really, this was a really exciting year to be a movie fan. And just briefly, we're going to talk about next year, which is maybe not as an exciting year It's to be a movie fan. Yeah. It's a little bit more nebulous. Yeah, well, and the, the strikes did not help it. So yes. there's some movies that probably would have been ready by next year, like Gladiator 2, that I am pretty excited for, but are probably not going to get out. So... We don't have a ton of movies to talk about here in our most anticipated films of next year section. Uh, the big one for me is the next Bong Joon-ho movie. 
his follow-up to the Academy Award-winning Parasite. He's got a movie with Robert Pattinson coming out called Mickey 17 about the 17th clone of an astronaut named Mickey who it seems like there's going to be some sci-fi nonsense. He's, uh, it appears as though the clone is used to like explore planets and then when he dies they just make another clone and send him back out. It's a really intriguing premise. I love science fiction. I really like Bong Joon-ho. Obviously, Robert Pattinson is on an absolutely bonkers comeback tour currently, uh, continuing an absolutely bonkers comeback tour that he started with Tenet and the Batman, kind of. So I'm incredibly excited for this. It's easily my most anticipated movie of the year of next year. Elliot, what do you got kind of anticipated? Well, I would second that. I really like Bong Joon-ho. I probably like Parasite a little bit less than you do, but I still think it's really good. Um, I also really like Snowpiercer. I think he's a really talented director, so I'm excited for this. It's definitely one that I'm going to want to watch in theaters. For me, I'm excited for Dune Part 2. I know that Nathan isn't. Nathan did not enjoy Dune Part 1. I understand this is kind of narrow in its appeal, um, like the Dune story is not just the movie, but the book, the whole Dune aesthetic. It's a movie that speaks to me, um, uh, at least to my like artistic sensibilities, not necessarily on an emotional level, but I, I really dig the Dune aesthetic. Denis Villeneuve is a fantastic director. You can always count on him for the visuals. Don't roll your eyes. You you know this is true. I agree. There's not going to be much else to write home about for Dune Part 2. Well, we'll see. I will say that Dune Part 2 is kind of going to determine my ultimate feelings on Dune Part 1. Because um, it's like, it really is half a movie. But anyway, so that would probably be my most anticipated. I'm also looking forward to Nosferatu, Robert Eggers' adaptation of the classic vampire story. I like Robert Eggers. He can always be relied on for the style. Um, the Lighthouse is bonkers off the rails, but it's very stylish. And it is a movie that I enjoy. I also like The Northmen, although I don't like it as much as a lot of people did. But again, very stylish. I think that this is a perfect kind of marriage of material and director. I think that a sort of quaint, antiquated horror movie is exactly what Robert Eggers should be making. Um, so that would probably be those together and Mickey 17 would probably be my most anticipated. There's also rumblings of an adaptation of Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. It's unclear. I looked it up um, earlier today and it's very unclear where that stands. I'm not even sure if it started production. So it's kind of unlikely that it'll come out next year. But in the case that it does, I want to say that I love Cormac McCarthy. He's dearly missed. Uh, I was really sad to see him go this year. Um, and Blood Meridian is a great book, although this movie is going to be brutal. Because Blood Meridian is one of the most messed up books I have ever read. It's undeniably brilliant, but it is hard to get through. So that'll be fun. <laughs> Yeah, the only other movie I'm really excited, kind of excited for, the trailer kind of dampened my excitement a bit, but mm. I still am definitely going to go to it, is George Miller's Furiosa. I love Fury Road. It's one of the best action movies, maybe of all time. So I have very high hopes for this one, but uh, the trailer did not do a lot to get me excited about it. I am still obviously going to go and see, see it in theaters. Uh, there's a few other movies that there's rumbling, like possibilities, 
Tarantino's newest movie might come out. Unlikely, so we're not going to talk about those. Uh, yeah, otherwise, that's this year. That's 2023 That is in recap. That is the year that was and the bit of the year that will be. Yeah, yeah. We are not going to have another new episode until uh, 2024 because one of us will be flying out of the country and will be traveling Europe. So uh, that's really that's really exciting for you, Elliot. I'm really glad. Yeah, you mentioned that it was you last week when we talked Dang about this. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, we will not have a new episode out until the next year, but we hope you have a great rest of your year. I hope you have a Merry Christmas or a Happy Hanukkah or whatever you celebrate. I hope you have an enjoyable holiday season. And have we- a good December. <laughs> have a good December. And we will see you in 2024 with new episodes of Magellan's at the movies.